You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. And we say this often at King's Church that we preach through books of the Bible, meaning that we don't skip over hard passages, uh, even those that are difficult, like today's. Uh, Passages that perhaps you hear and you uh, listen to Sarah just reading that, and you think, well, how on earth does this apply to me today? And we're going to look at the text today, and we're going to hope to better understand it and also apply it to our lives. Now, back in 2017, there was a uh, TV home interview uh, conducted by BBC that went viral. Now, this particular interview went viral not because of the content of the interview, but what was happening in the background of the interview. Uh, it was a professor, uh, Professor Kelly. Uh, he lived in South Korea at the time. He was uh, an academic. Uh, he spoke on uh, foreign relations, specifically with Korea, North Korea, and South Korea. And he would, from time to time, uh, from his apartment, do these interviews with BBC. And uh, normally when he would do these interviews, he would do one simple task before he did the interview. And that is that he would lock the door to his study. The reason being is because he has small children in his house. Well, this particular day, he forgot to do that. And so let me just sit the stage before we see it on the screen here. He's doing this interview, a very serious interview. The South Korean president was just impeached. And he is the leading expert to speak on this issue with BBC World News. And as he's doing this interview, his wife is in the living room, as she does with all of his TV interviews, and she is filming it, she's taping it to record it so that he can watch it back. And she has the kids with her, and she thinks everything's great, so that she then goes to the restroom to take a momentary break from the kids. And in this very small moment of opportunity, the kids act fast. And they dart towards the study, they open the door, and then the next scene is the the mom comes back into the living room, and as she's watching it unfold on TV, she sees that her kids are in the background of this BBC interview. And this is like a little gif, or gif, however you say it, uh, on the screen here that shows just kind of what was happening during that time. Okay, so uh, the kids are in the room. Uh, There's one behind the dad that you can't see on a little rolling cart. He's a baby on a rolling cart that rolled his way in there. And the other one just comes in there and starts picking up the pins and markers next to his dad, dad and just starts writing. And mom finally sees this. She sprints from the bathroom. I'm not even going to share the details, but her pants are unbuttoned if you look closely enough. And she sprints in there to yank her kids off the interview. And then she tries to hide on the way out as if she, you can't see her as she pulls them out of the room. All the while, the dad is just trying to hold it together. How am I going to conduct this interview? You can take that off now. Um, <laughs> He thought he was going to get fired after this, and instead it turned into a viral sensation that went uh, viral, and everybody loved uh, seeing the the relationship here with his family. Now, bring this uh, beautiful mess of a picture to our minds today, because it is perhaps the best picture we can grasp today of the intersection of family and work. It shows that these relationships are unavoidable realities in our lives. Now, perhaps your family and your work life aren't going to converge on national television like this family, But it does paint a picture for us that we can't avoid these relationships, both our familiar relationships and our workplace relationships. Whether you're a student today, whether you're retired, whether you work part-time, full-time, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're someone's child today, these relationships are unavoidable. And the Bible speaks very clear, and we'll see today with clarity, on how we should relate to one another in these particular spheres. 
And so it's important for us to see that this applies to all of us, how we live out this life worthy of the calling of which we receive from Christ, both in our family and our work. Now, this is also relevant for us today because in society, these are two things that are very weighty for us. And oftentimes, we place too much weight on one or the other. We tend to pit them against each other at times. We tend to think that they are our idols at times. There are, there are at times when, when families put so much value on their family, and specifically their children, that they idolize that as the most important thing, the ultimate thing in their world. And on the flip side, it happens with our careers as well where we put so much emphasis on our careers that it is the ultimate thing for our identity and who we are. And what Paul is going to show us here is that both our careers and our work life and our family life, they matter. They matter in right proportion to who our God is. So whether today you choose to have a family one day or perhaps you never have a family, being your own kids, or you choose to be a stay-at-home parent or in a particular career field, what Paul's going to remind us here today is that all these relationships matter dearly to us, and they're opportunities for us to display the gospel of grace in our lives. So our main idea, which is on the, the screen right now, is simply this, that if we're going to rightly understand how to order family and rightly understand how to order our work life today, we're going to see that Christ is Lord over our families and work. That then they would, the, the gospel is going to compel us to see today is that Christ, he is the one who is sovereign and over both our families and our work life. And that's going to be our outline from the screen today. We're going to look at this text. We're going to essentially just look at the two uh, people groups that Paul is speaking to. First, we're going to look at how Christ is Lord of our family life in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And then secondly, we're going to see how Christ is Lord over our work life in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And so let's begin with family. And again, as I said at the beginning, whether you find yourself as a parent here, a grandparent, or someone's child today, uh, this has meaning for all of us. Let's read in verse 1. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul begins to give a, a, a lot of commands here, uh, a lot of action steps for the family. He tells children, hey, your first step is to obey your parents and then honor your father and mother as well, which is a commandment from the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. And then he uh, speaks to the parents themselves. He says, parents, you are to train your children up in, in such a way, and fathers specifically, in such a way that instructs them and disciplines them in the way of the Lord. Now, the first thing we have to see here as we look at this is what is the environment of the home that Paul is wanting us to understand here? What is the environment that, that these things can take place? And that is an environment of grace. The environment of a Christian home is one that is covered with the grace of God. What I mean by that is when you look at these commandments, you see that they cannot function without grace being the centerpiece. Obedience is not something that we do in, to, in order to earn our place in the family of God. Paul's already told us in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's for by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not of our works. It's not of our own obedience. It's not what we can do in order to earn our position in the family of God. In the same way, when we think of children, it is not the obedience of a children that earns their position in the family. It is, it is grace that allows a child to be brought up into a family. And so the environment of a home starts with grace because grace leads one to then want to seek obedience. 
As you see the word here, obey, um, he's, he's using this language. He says, for it is right. What he means by his right is that when we think about the, the command for children to be obedient to their, their parents, this isn't a social construct. This is something God ordered. This is something right for, for children to do. And he actually roots it then in the Ten Commandments, that we should honor, which is separate from obedience, honor our parents, honor our father and mother. And what's attached to this commandment is a blessing, actually. That is the first commandment with a promise. And what Paul's getting at here is that obedience really leads us to a place of blessing. So as children are functioning in the home to obey their parents, the the authorities that God has given them, that actually can lead to a place of blessing because it's not something they do to earn the favor of their parents. Obedience is not something we do in order to be reconciled to God. Even when we look at the Ten Commandments, and when uh, Paul is referencing back to this, when you look at the Ten Commandments, Moses makes it very clear that the Ten Commandments are not the way in which Israel will be saved. In fact, the very first words leading into the Ten Commandments remind us of God's grace. Israel, remember the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt. He is the one who has done this for you. Therefore, now let's obey. Obedience functions properly when we see the atmosphere of God's grace in our homes. But then he turns to the parents. I think this is perhaps a a little more specific. He says to the parents, and particularly fathers, to not provoke their children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, why does he address the fathers here? Well, in one sense, perhaps he's addressing the fathers because they were seen as the, the head of the household. So perhaps he's, he's putting the weight on the father here in this moment. Perhaps it's also because fathers uh, may be more prone to be provoking their children to anger. And as a father, I could, I could attest to that. that. That's probably true as well. But ultimately what Paul's doing here is he's drawing a contrast to the, the house orders of the Greco-Roman world. He's drawing a contrast that when we understand the grace of God, it changes the way in which we operate in this parent-child relationship. Because in the Greco-Roman world, fathers literally owned their children. Children were their property, meaning that they had the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate authority over their children. And they were taught to do whatever they pleased for their children, to take charge, to be the boss, to take over. And Paul says, contrary to that, When we understand the grace of God, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't lead them to a place where they will become embittered with you. Robert Murray McShane, who's a pastor and a theologian of the 19th century, he said this about being a pastor, and I think it really applies to parent-child relationships as well. He says, the greatest need of my people as a pastor is my personal holiness. What he means by that is, in other words, you have to practice what you preach, or else the congregation is going to get embittered with you, right? And the same is true of parenting. You have to practice what you preach. If you live a hypocritical life in front of your children, they will become embittered with you. And the way in which we often do this, and what he's, he's getting at here is hypocrisy tends to lean one way or the other when it comes to embittering or provoking children to anger. In one way, it can be because a parent is too harsh and too controlling. The other way, the parent could just live a life of contrast, meaning do as I say, not as I do. You see, we have to see that the, the, the best thing that a parent can give to their child is exactly what Robert Murray McShane was saying, their personal holiness. Now, it's important to recognize there's a difference between being a hypocrite and being imperfect. Let's just go ahead and throw this out there. Every single one of our parents, they, they, they are imperfect people, okay? 
My parents were imperfect people. It is possible to be an imperfect human being and not be a hypocrite. But a hypocrite is someone who says, who, who knows that they're imperfect yet demands to be treated as they are perfect. A hypocrite is someone who says, I'm not raising my children in the Lord, I'm raising my children as the Lord. And to do that leads to a disastrous situation in the home. So the best thing, and what Paul's saying here is, why, why don't you provoke your children to anger? Because you operate in a household of grace. You give your children the best thing you can give them, which is your own holiness and your own repentance. Jim Gaffigan, who's a comedian, he wrote a, a book about uh, fathering his five children. He says in the book, he says, uh, each child has a unique way of exposing his flaws. He says that each child has a, has a way of expose, exposing his flaws and his imperfections in such a way that he says, I need about 37 more children to sort out all my rough edges that my five children currently don't have the capacity to do, right? What he means there is that he's imperfect and he acknowledges his imperfection. But it's taken it a step further than just acknowledging our imperfections. What kids need to see is the humble apology of parents. Because when you expose your weakness in those moments, it's an opportunity for you to tell the story of God's grace. It's an opportunity for you to tell the story that Jesus is the one who provides grace for us in those moments. So the best thing a father can do or a parent can do is create a household where grace is the environment of obedience and instruction. Now then he says the goal of parenting next. It's not just that we create this home of grace, but there's actually a goal that Paul's getting at when it comes to the home that's different, that's contrary to the world around them. And the goal is in verse four. He says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, the goal of parenting, or we can just say broadly here, the goal of ministering to young people is to lead them to a place over time where they depend less and less on you and more and more on Christ. That's the goal. That one day they will depend less and less on you and become your peer in life and depend more and more on Christ. That you will one day hand them over to Jesus and into his hands. That is the goal that Paul is saying every parent should have. Train your kid up and then they leave. Now, how does he say we should do this? He says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instruction meaning that passing down wisdom. That there's something that we can pass down to our children, specifically how we see success operate in this world. Success being the the word of God, believing and living it out. And offering that to children. And the result of this, again, is if we offer this to children, then we can, we can instruct them. Now, we know ultimately it's in God's hands. He is sovereign, and he's in control of our children. But that is, the, that is the goal of parenting, to instruct them, to lead them to see Jesus. There's no greater joy, or should be no greater joy for a parent than to see their child walking in truth. Everything else in life is gravy. The grades they make, the things they accomplish, all that is just the gravy on top of this goal of parenting, to see them, see the beauty of Christ by instructing them in wisdom. Then he also says discipline. Now, when we think about discipline, particularly in, in, in the context of a parent-child relationship, um, this is a controversial topic, and so we're not going to get into uh, should, you, should you whip your children or not. Um, we're not going to get into that today, but, but maybe you see the broader perspective of what is discipline and why does it matter to us. Perhaps a good definition from the Bible is simply this. Discipline is a controlled, purposeful use of discomfort. Is a controlled, purposeful use of discomfort. Why? Because there are things that need to be expelled from our souls, all of us. There are things that we feel entitled to. There are things that we are selfish with, and kids show that so well. They show the things that they feel entitled to and the things that they're selfish about. 
And discipline is a way to use something that brings discomfort in the moment, but that can actually expel those things, can prune those things out of them, right? That's what the Bible describes as well, this idea of pruning, which is a gardening term, to produce something of a fruit. Now, my kids, they, they love gardening. Um, they, they absolutely love it. We, one of the perks of living in a city is that there's like community gardens that you can go to and you can plant things and dig around and everyone's kind of got their little garden patch in their, their, their front little area of their town home. So my kids love to go and we've befriended a few people with gardens so they can go and plant things during the springtime and they absolutely love it. On the flip side of that, they don't understand the suburb culture. Um, when we went to, uh, Riddick, so I remember when we went to your house, uh, your, apart, your house for the first time, and uh, Ellie walks up and sees their, their lawn, and she says, oh, look at this garden. I'm like, child, that's a yard, okay? <laughs> like, there's a difference. There's a reason why there's not plants there. Um, she doesn't understand. Uh, poor thing. But, you know, she loves gardening. They love, they love the process of gardening. And, and when you garden, you have to prune on a consistent basis. In other words, you have to weed out the bad in order for the good branches to uh, absorb the resources needed for it to grow. And the Bible talks about this with discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields something. It yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, when we think about discipline, it is not retributive. It's not this idea that I'm going to take out my anger on a child because they're not filling up something in me. They're not giving me the love I need. They're not giving me the honor I need. They're not giving me whatever I need to fill my happiness. That's not discipline. Discipline is, is actually an act of love. It's an act to protect that child. It's an act to say, I want to do something that may cause discomfort, but is actually going to help heal the child and protect the child from harming themselves. So he says we have to discipline children. Now, the thing a child needs to hear more than anything is how much they are loved, but they need to hear that in the context of that there's a right and a wrong, and there's a way to live. If we were to love children just so they can grow up and live however they want to, then we're not bringing them up in the Lord. If we're, if we're to be over-domineering and over-disciplinarians with our kids and to crush them, we're not bringing them up in the Lord. Now, I want to speak to everyone in the room here because we're all children here in some way. We, we may not have children, but we're all children. And here's the tension of this passage, I think, how it applies to us. When your parents raise you up to send you out, there becomes a tension point with what it looks like to continue to obey your parents and still honor them. And here's just what I want to say briefly to you. Whether you had good parents or bad parents, I, I'm sorry, but the reality is there comes a point in time where you have to live independently of them. What Paul's saying here is the goal of parenting is that children will be raised up and they will then function outside of the home, meaning that they will not obey their parents the same way they did when they were under the roof. They will lean into Christ in new ways and in, in, in new seasons of life. But no matter if you had good parents or bad parents, the command is to always honor them. It's to always show them respect. It may not be to listen to all their ideas, especially if their ideas are bad. But what we can't do is turn to bitterness and anger because our parents disappointed us. And we can't turn to as well as trying to still live under the roof as if everything they say, it gives us our ultimate approval. We have to be able to move on in life as the goal of parenting is to raise up children to then send them out into the world, but to still honor our parents. And the reason why I say this is because if you desire one day to have a family or perhaps you're around children in your immediate family, the reality is children are going to have a hard time respecting you if they don't see you respecting your parents. 
And the flip side is it's just not good for our conscience, right? To be angry, to be embittered towards our parents. There's a way to appropriately respect them. There's, there's a way in life, in adulthood especially, a way to honor your parents. doesn't mean you have to, to agree with everything they say. It doesn't mean that you have to do everything they, they tell you. There's an appropriate way to honor them and to say, I can, I can promote the good that my parents shared with me or my, the guardian or the mentor that, that was with me in those moments. I can promote the good while also forgiving them for the mistakes they made because they all made mistakes and they will continue to make mistakes. The goal of parenting ultimately is to lead children to be less and less dependent on parents and more and more dependent on Christ. And then briefly, we also see the role of community that plays in this passage here. The role of community. Look back at verse one again. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now that phrase, in the Lord, we've seen that phrase come up time and time and time again in the the book of Ephesians. It's referencing back to our union with Christ, that we are in Christ. And when we talk about our union with Christ in chapter one and two, what we're saying is that when, when the Lord redeems us, he doesn't redeem us in isolation. He doesn't redeem us into an individual. He redeems us into a people, into a community. And there's something very good, wise, and practical to to just say this, church, that when we raise children at King's Church, we don't believe it's just one set of parents or a single parent. It is a community. It is beneficial that the family of God is an active partaker in, in loving and caring for the children of the church. That's why when we do baby dedications on a Sunday, we bring the children up here. We don't only just tell the parents and covenant with the parents that they would raise their children up in the Lord. We say to the congregation that we're going to do whatever, whatever responsibility we have to assist them in that. Because no matter how good a parent is, no matter how experienced a parent is, they all need help. They all need help. And the community of faith is there to help. Now on the flip side, this is also good for all of us. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Some of you may can resonate with this quote. C.S. Lewis says, I do not enjoy the society of small children. (laughs) So we're like, yeah, I'm right there with you, C.S. Lewis. But then he says, and I recognize this as a defect in myself. Now, what he means by that is not to guilt trip you into going to the Kingdom Kids interest meeting after this, okay? (laughs) What he means is he understands that when we live in the kingdom of God, the best way to view that is to get close to children. Because when you get close to children, you see just how much we need God's resources for our lives. We see just how much we need his grace and his care and provision to survive. Because children will, will live so authentically in that way. Man, children do such a great job reminding us that we are secure moment by moment because we live our lives in front of the gaze of our true parent, our good father. And in him is enough to seek our approval and our love and security at all times. We can learn so much from children. That's why community is necessary. Now, before we move on to to our work life, let me just say a word of grace to any parents in the room today. If your children grow up, or if they have grown up, or if you have fears of them growing up and struggling and rebelling in this world, I just want you to take heart for a moment. That if that happens to you, that is not your identity as a parent. If that happens to you, there's a way in which you can actually share in the sufferings of Christ. Because God himself knows what it's like to have wayward children. And in fact, the book of Isaiah says that all of his children have strayed. I mean, God, the the perfect parent, the one who has never done anything wrong, and his children have rebelled against him. And so when you you live this life and you have a fear that your children are going to struggle in life or they're going to rebel, I want you to take heart that the scorn of God does not come to you in those moments. 
But what comes to you in those moments is the compassion and grace and mercy of our God who knows better than anyone what it's like to have a wayward child. And he's there to meet us in those times of need. So if you feel like you failed as a parent, or you feel like you are failing as a parent right now, take heart in a God who knows that even the best parents in this world are just a microcosm or just a glimpse of how good he is to us in his unfailing love that we all need in this life. And to know that God is a God who can restore even the, the worst of family situations in this life. Okay. Let's move on to our second half here, the work life. Now again, when we look at this passage, it might seem like it's not applicable because the language here sometimes overinterpreted, sometimes it's often lost in translations, and I know we can get tripped up on language here, so let's just go ahead and read verse 5, and let's deal with the obvious thing that, that may be tripping us here. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now that right there is jarring to our modern ears, is it not? Some of your translations may even say, slaves, obey your masters, and immediately we hear that, it triggers something in our minds. This is not appropriate, and this is not something that's applicable to me, because slavery is disgusting. We think about it in our own context of our history, it immediately takes us to a place of the, the chattel slavery of the African slave trade, which was horrific, and there's no sugarcoating that at all. And we may wonder why in this moment, before we get to anything else, we have to deal with the question that probably is lingering in our hearts right now. Why does Paul just not condemn it right now? In this moment, why does he not just condemn this bond servanthood, this slavery right now in this moment? Why does he say it's wrong, but then he goes on to tell bond servants to actually obey their earthly masters? How do we reconcile this? Well, just briefly, we have to see that this is different. We have to be able to take ourselves out of our own history and put ourselves in the Roman world and see that there is something different about what Paul is saying here. The first thing we notice is that the, 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 the servanthood, the bond servanthood, or, or slaves as the translation is also said, uh, it was different in the Roman Empire because it wasn't race-based. It wasn't based on an ethnicity. And it also wasn't something that was, was meant for a lifetime. In fact, on average, most people uh, left their bond servanthood by the time they were 30 in the Roman Empire. And the third thing that made it so different is that uh, it wasn't an, an, an economic or social category, meaning that a bond servant's economic status, his educational status, the opportunities he had were actually tied to his master, meaning that there were some bond servants that had greater education and actually greater economic value than those who were free. And oftentimes, because of this, when people were looking for work, they would go into a bond-servant relationship with a master. It was more security to do that than try to work as a free person in the Roman Empire. And so all that being said, it's much different from what we think of when we think of our own history. But even in that, there was opportunities for abuse to happen. Abuse of power by a master and resentment by those who were servants. And because of that, Paul addresses this pretty explicit. And in fact, there's a whole other letter of the Bible that's written about this issue. It's the, it's the, the letter of Philemon. And just briefly, that letter is about a, a master, Philemon, who has a servant named Onesimus who runs away. And as he runs away, he comes in contact with Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him. He becomes a Christian. And Paul tells him, you need to go back to your master now. And he sends a letter ahead of Onesimus to Philemon, and he tells Philemon, hey, Onesimus is coming back to you. By the way, Philemon is a Christian as well. He says, Onesimus is coming back to you, but when you receive him, you have every legal right to receive him as a slave, but instead you receive him as a brother. 
And what he means by that is simply this, that Onesimus' job's not going to change. He's going to do the same work. But the environment is going to change. The atmosphere is going to change. When he comes back, he's going to be received as a brother. You see, what, what Paul's after here is that if you apply the gospel to these relationships, you can't logically get to a place of what we see in the African slave trade. What Paul is actually saying here is that to be a Christian means that you rightly understand the relationships in the workplace, regardless if you are a boss or if you are a servant. And what he's getting at here is ultimately that those who were over, uh, overbearing to their servants, th- those who were quick to belittle their servants, those who were quick to underpay and overwork their servants, Paul is saying that is not what the gospel compels us to do. In fact, you don't treat them like that. You begin to treat them like a brother. You see, the atmosphere that Paul is calling us to is actually one that slavery will only be able to wilt and die in. That's precisely what happens when we look at the Greco-Roman world. We see that slavery eventually dies out, not in spite of Ephesians 6, but because of passages like Ephesians 6. Because of how Paul was saying the grace of God transforms the way in which we relate to one another. And so more appropriately, when we look at this passage, what we're seeing here is the relation between the workforce, between those who were masters and those who were bond servants, those who were perhaps uh, called to, 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 to work in that work life without resentment of their position, and those too who were perhaps tempted to be overbearing in their position. And so I think there's some things that we can learn about this text briefly. Number one is that we can see in this text that there is dignity in all our work. Notice that he doesn't separate the dignity between the bondservant and the master here. There is dignity in every single aspect of their work. And he says here basically to bloom wherever you're planted in life. He tells the bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as would Christ. Now we have to deal with something here for a moment. That, that there is a limit to the loyalty that Paul is commanding these bond servants to offer to their masters. There's a limit to the loyalty in the workplace. Karl Marx uh, uh, points out in this passage in uh, one of his, his famous articles, he says that religion is the opiate of the masses. What he means by that is he says, saying things like obey your masters is just a way to promise the reward in the afterlife. And because there's a reward in the afterlife, it keeps the working class from rising up in revolt against injustice. And he was so wrong about this passage. Because that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul is actually saying there's a very important caveat that we can apply to our lives today when we think about entering in the workforce, and that is simply this. You obey, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. In other words, there are ethical guardrails to how we see our lives function in the workplace. We obey, we, we work hard, we do the job that we're supposed to do as we would Christ. That is the guardrail for us. And a beautiful picture of this is actually found in Genesis 39 with Joseph. Joseph is working in the house of Potiphar, who is in the highest court of the land of Egypt. And as he's working there, uh, Potiphar's wife approaches him one day. She's also his superior. And she offers him to be an employee with benefits. Right? She says, hey, come, I, 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 you're attractive. I want you to sleep with me. And this could be actually very advantageous for Joseph's career. It could actually probably help him in a lot of ways. But what is Joseph's response? He says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, there are some situations in our vocational environments where we have to have that position as a Christian. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Our calling to, to find dignity in our work and to, to work with the, the Lord and whatever he calls us to do, it has those ethical guardrails that we have to see that what we do, we do as we would do with Christ. And that helps keep us remaining in those ethical guardrails for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now, I think the big point here that he's getting at is uh, whether you're a bondservant or you're a master, he's using these to illustrate this truth that what we do, our work, has way less to do with, with what we do and has everything to do with how we do it. It matters what we do within those ethical guardrails, but it has way more to do with how we do it. Meaning whether you spend your days changing diapers or you're chief of staff of a congressional office, it has less to do with your position and way more to do with how you are actually living and functioning in that position. And there's two principles I think help us when we think about our work. Because perhaps right now you're thinking, man, my work seems just pointless. I don't seem like I'm finding meaning in my job. I feel like I'm resenting where I'm at in life right now. Let me just help you perhaps have the mindset that Paul is calling us here in this passage. And the first is, if you're in that moment, just deliver the best work you can. Like at the end of the day, what Paul is calling us to, and he actually says this in verse seven and nine, or excuse me, seven and eight, he talks about this, rendering services. You should render services with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Dorothy Sayers says it this way in an uh, article she wrote. She says, can anybody imagine in first century Judaism, can anybody imagine a poorly constructed table coming out of a carpenter's shop in Nazareth? Her point is, whether you're a carpenter like Jesus or you're the, the partner at a law firm, Again, what you do matters, but how you do it matters more. With a sincere heart, he says, hardworking. Paul is calling us to work with a work ethic that mirrors our Christian ethic. That we would do things and we would do things that would increase the value of those around us. Acts chapter two actually talks about this. The value of Christians, their, their, their life was making such a footprint on the city of Jerusalem that it says in Acts chapter two that they were having favor with all people. Abraham Kuyper says it this way, and we've, we've quoted him before with this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence in which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If we believe that, that that has implications of how we live our work life. We see that, that God has entrusted to us to work and find dignity in our work, whether we're in law or art or finance or journalism or the academy or restaurants or stocking shelves or changing diapers or feeding hungry stomachs. Whatever he gives us to do, whatever we eat, drink, or do, the Bible says, we can do it to the glory of God. That doesn't mean we're, we're, we're without ambition, right? If you find yourself in a situation where you're like, well, well Wesley, I'm, I'm trying to do the best work I can in the position I have, but I also have ambitions in life. Is it wrong for me to have those ambitions? No. But again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the, the driving force behind those ambitions, right? It's not, it's not a, a wrong. And in fact, I think what Paul's encouraging us here to work hard to work in such a way that God would open doors for you, to work in such a way that people would see your good work, that you're leaving a footprint, that you're actually making a difference in this world because Christ has redeemed every square inch of you and he's given us the opportunity now to go in the world and spread that blessing to others in our vocational lives. It's to work hard. And secondly, I would just say take heart in your work. If you feel right now that you are stuck if you feel right now that you're invisible at your job, which I'm assuming a lot of bond servants probably felt that way. If you feel like you just don't have the meaning right now to, to get to your day to day, take heart that God matters to your work and your work matters to him. And that's clearly seen probably most notably in verse nine. Look what he says here. Masters, 
do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. See, in our, our modern Western culture, we value a person based off of the work that they do rather than who they are. When people look at you, they think, what tax bracket are you in? What is your worth? That's what matters ultimately. But what God says here is no, every person has dignity, meaning their work matters because they're all in the same playing field. He says, whether you're working class or ruling class, doesn't matter. You all have the same master. And with him, there is no favoritism. With him, there is no partiality based off of social standing or based on your position. Paul is encouraging us to see that we can take heart knowing that every person is infused with dignity in their work because of their God. So if you work with your hands and you're creative and you're artistic and you, you make something out of nothing and you're an entrepreneur, where well, you're doing the creative, redemptive work of God. You're mirroring God's creation. Or if you're someone who, who takes things that are in, out of order and you bring uh, order out of chaos or you're, you're healing that which is broken, then you're doing the redemptive uh, form of, of work for God. You're, you're partnering in his work in this world, no matter what your task may be. Paul is ultimately saying here that the reason why we, we look to our ultimate master who is in heaven is because all of our work is his work. And he's allowing us to work. He's giving us the opportunity to work and he's delegating opportunities for us to live our lives, to put him on display as the real master, as our real boss, as the one who is behind all of our earthly bosses. And so if, you, if you're struggling in your work right now, take heart, look to him because he always deserves a good day of work. He is the boss who always deserves the best of what we can do, to work with all of our hearts, to be productive, to do our best, to work with excellence. And when we do this, it is so freeing because it frees you from being controlled by your atmosphere, by your environment. No matter how toxic your work environment is, and there's wisdom at times to get out of those environments, no matter how toxic that is, that does not define your identity. It does not define the dignity of the work you do. Your God does, the one who is the true master, the one who is the true boss does. Meaning that we can go into any work environment and we can see that there is meaningful work to be done because we are working into another, one who is higher or greater than any of our earthly bosses that we work with. It frees us from being controlled by our environment. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, let's just settle on this last point here. What Paul is encouraging us here to see is this, that in our, both our family life and our work life, the grace we need is to rest in the work of another, to rest in the work that's already been done for us. You see, the gospel message is, is reminding us that the, the true master that he speaks of here became a servant for us. Not because he had to, not because we were entitled to that, not because we were, uh, had authority over him, but because he loved us. In Philippians 2, it used the exact same verbiage that we see here in this passage. That the master of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, took on the form of a bondservant. He did that, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took that punishment for us. Which is why when we go back to verse 6 here, we see that this is not how we should operate. We don't work by way of eye service as people pleasers. Because to work by way of eye service is to work to avoid some kind of punishment. To work because you feel like you're threatened constantly. But Jesus took that punishment for us. We don't have to work that way because he worked himself to death on a cross to secure our favor with God to secure our position in the family of God. 
So listen, the starting point for how we operate in this life and work in this life is resting in the work that he has done for us. It is not the inverse, which is what every other religion will tell you to do. Work, 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 work. And if you work hard enough and good enough, maybe one day you'll be able to rest. But Jesus tells us, no, you rest in what I've done for you. And out of that, you can work and labor with joy in this life for the sake of children and your family, for the sake of your coworkers and your bosses, for the sake of the good of this world, because I've already done the work for you. That is the gospel message, that we can rest in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.